we on? We're on? Good. Okay, well, guess what, guys? You've got me tonight. Pastor's down in Melbourne at the National Baptist Conference, and uh, yeah, uh, Short and Stumpy is, uh, <laughs> is up here tonight. <laughs> so um, it's uh, going to be an interesting night. We can have a, a nice little Bible study, similar to what we actually have in uh, life groups on Sunday morning. Uh, and uh, by the way, if you are a charge keeper here, um, it might pay you to uh, take the odd note or two tonight because what you actually hear tonight might possibly be in the exam at the end of the course. <laughs> so, um, yeah, tonight we're uh, going to be uh, talking about walking in love, as the, uh, the uh, PowerPoint says up there. And the passage that we're going to be looking at a little bit later is Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, we're going to try, if we can, to get through all of 1 through to 21. So we'll see how we go. Uh, We'll only read, though, uh, uh, verses 1 and 2 as we uh, get further in. Um, Just a little bit of background, though. Uh, uh, We've been going through this with our seniors uh, in our life group studies on Sunday morning, and it's been exciting, very much so, to actually go through the book of Ephesians uh, because there's an awful lot that we can actually learn, uh, even starting right the way back and looking at the actual culture of the Ephesian church itself and, and the Ephesus itself. And just a few little basic facts here that are quite uh, interesting to know. See if I can get my little clicker ready to work. And uh, for example, uh, Ephesus uh, was founded uh, by, I'll just move it forward a little bit. Hopefully this will work. Is it moving forward? Nathan, can you move that slide forward just one? This thing's not... That's it. Thank you. Okay, Ephesus founded as an, was founded as an Attic uh, Ionian colony in 10th century BC and was eventually absorbed into the Roman Republic in the 2nd century BC. It was under Roman rule that the population in Ephesus grew to around about 250,000 inhabitants, making it the fourth largest city uh, in, in line with Rome. The uh, main amphitheatre, which you see up there, it's a slightly smaller picture, but uh, the main amphitheatre there, uh, you'll notice, actually is housed something like 24,500 people. Now, a little exercise I did tonight, just out of curiosity, was I thought, well, I'll have a look and see how many people the Suncorp Stadium actually houses. And it, it houses 52,500 So when you consider the fact that this was built back in the second century or thereabouts um, BC, this amphitheatre is considerable. Um, So much for those people who might say that they were very uncivilised back in those days. They certainly weren't. Uh, Ephesus was a wealthy city with streets lined with polished marble, much in the way of the Greco-Roman uh, architecture. The city was a western terminus for east-west trade, exporting products to Greece, Italy and the rest of the Roman West. Ephesus was pluralistic in its... I'll just see if this works again. Press the button. button. Yep. The left and right. Ah, the left and right button. Does help if I do the right one. Yes. There we go. Uh, Okay, so the city was a a western terminus, as we talked about. It was uh, very, very strong with trade. Uh, Ephesus was also pluralistic in its religion, with many ethnic and cultural backgrounds represented in it. And, of course, the main religion of Ephesus was the Artemis cult, and it was dominated. It was the one that actually dominated the city. And uh, as you can see here, uh, they had considerably large temples around the actual hills uh, in Ephesus. 
Now, if we move forward, uh, Paul, of course, uh, went to Ephesus on his second missionary journey and also on his third missionary journey. The second one was in AD 52. The third one was in AD 54 to around about AD 56. And it was on the third missionary journey uh, after the church had already been established on his second missionary journey that he actually stayed for around about two to three years pastoring the church and so on. Uh, During the early years of the church in Ephesus, there was growth, there was expansion, and there was a great desire to actually um, uh, serve the Lord and do the will of God. The sad part is that by the uh, AD 90s, uh, there were some serious problems that were actually appearing in the church itself. Uh, And uh, there was a church split uh, that ensued and caused by false teachers who had literally infiltrated into the church and they were literally teaching what they classed as secret knowledge. Now, the secret knowledge we know today is what we call Gnosticism. Who's heard of the word Gnosticism? Yep. Okay, so Gnosticism uh, had at its core the fact that uh, a person's secret knowledge was what actually helped them to find their salvation and overcome the material world. Another way of looking at Gnosticism was the fact that the body and the spirit were separate. It was the spirit that was saved, and so therefore it didn't really matter what the body did, uh, which is uh, rather terrible when you think about it. Okay, so Paul writes to the Ephesians, he writes to them approximately 10 years after he actually established the church in AD 62 and uh, what we will have now, if I can just flick this up on the screen, as you can see, is just a very, very brief uh, summary um, of the actual first four chapters. So this is kind of like a helicopter view of the first four chapters of uh, the book of Ephesians. First of all, we have in chapter 1, verses 1 through to 14, Paul's greeting to the church and a description of their spiritual blessings in Christ. In chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, we see Paul's reminder, uh, they are one in Christ. Indeed, both Jew, Gentile and Greek and everyone together were all one in Christ. Uh, And uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 14 to 21, Paul's prayer for the spiritual church, uh, for spiritual strength for the Ephesian church. So he was praying continuously for the church, that it would continue to grow and be strong in the Lord. Chapter 4 and verses 17 to 32, we see Paul's reminder that they now have new life in Christ and we must put off the old man and put on the new. Okay, And this summary, of course, brings us to what we're actually going to be talking about tonight, which is chapter 5 and verses 1 through to 21, but we'll only actually read verses 1 to 2. So uh, if you've got your Bibles there, we'll just read that passage just briefly, and then I'd like to pray and just ask the Lord to uh, just guide us as we go through. Okay, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. Okay, so there's some significant verses there and we'll be looking at those very shortly. So let's just close our eyes and we'll just pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for this time that we can spend in your word. We ask that you will just lead us and guide us now as we go through it briefly, Lord. I know this is only a real, really just a helicopter view of what, we're, uh, what is in your word in Ephesians chapter 5. But Father, we pray that you will just use it, Lord, to touch our lives. And uh, Lord, that we might go from this place knowing that we have met with Jesus. Father, we just thank you and we praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay, so what does it mean to walk in love? What was Paul wanting to get across to the Ephesian Christians in these first few verses of chapter 5? In a nutshell, he was wanting them to understand that they were to be imitators of, of Christ's love, but for them to do this, they were, there were things uh, from their old way of life that they literally had to unload. They had to get rid of them. How, uh, so how does he explain this? He starts off by telling them in verse 1 to be followers of God as dear children. But hang on a minute. Why is Paul telling them to be a, fo a follower of God? After all, didn't they become that automatically when they got saved? The key to understanding what Paul is saying here is understanding the implications of the word followers. The Greek word Paul uses here is the word mimetes, which carries with it the meaning of being an imitator or a follower. So what, Paul, what was Paul saying to them by using this word? He's saying to be a follower of God requires an action on their part. Okay, He's not just simply calling them to think about God. He's not just calling them to admire God or adore God, even though these are all important Christian duties. No, this is a call to practical action, going beyond our inner life with God. To be a follower or an imitator of God carries with it what the Apostle Peter states in 1 Peter verses 5, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, and he says this, he says, But as he, he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. We need to understand here that the word conversation does not mean just the words that come out of our mouth, but it carries with it the meaning of in all manner of behaviour. Okay? It doesn't just mean what comes out of this, this thing here. Simply put, as Christians, in all we think, in all we say, in all we do, we are to be imitators of our Heavenly Father. How are we to do this? As dear children is the answer. Paul uses the example for a good reason. Children, as we've all understood, any one of us who've had kids will understand that children are natural imitators. Who's ever seen their child try to imitate them? Absolutely. And so they will often do just what they see their parents or other adults do. Applying this thinking to our Christian applying this thinking to our Christian walk, when we act according to our nature as children of God, we will imitate him. How do we do this? Paul gives the answer and the example we are to follow in verse 2, when he says, "And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us." Just as Christ's love imitates the character of his father in sacrificial agape love, so too are we to walk in that same kind of sacrificial love so that we too can be sweet-smelling savour to God. When Paul is saying walk in love, he is saying that it is this love that's God's sacrificial love or agape love or we can also use the word unconditional love, that should pervade our whole conversation, that is, our whole of life. It should be the principle with which we act. It should also direct the ends at which we aim. 
So even what we're thinking about in the future should be directed and guided by walking in love. Now, in verses 3 to 4, after giving the Ephesians very clear instructions as to how they are to walk as new creatures in Christ, he gives them some straightforward teaching on how they are not to be. Like what he told them in chapter 4. What does he say here? He says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you. I'll just move forward a little bit. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, but rather giving of thanks. So I've abbreviated it a little bit there, but we get the understanding of what it's actually being said. Paul is here listing the kind of things that were part of their life prior to coming to Christ. And we all know what our life was like before we came to Christ. When we look at the specific words that Paul uses here, we see the importance of why he says, let it not be once named among you. Now, remember, he's talking to the church of Ephesus here. The word fornication stems from the Greek word porneia, and it's a broad word describing sexual sin. All uncleanness is another broad word for dirty, moral behaviour, especially in the sexual sense. Covetousness, by implication, means fraudulent, extortion, covetous practices, greediness. Like, for example, if you see the next-door neighbour driving in their red Ferrari and you think, oh, wow, I'd really like one of those. You know, there's danger in that. That, that, can, that, can, that covetousness can lead to a person sinning. Foolish talking, silly talk, that is buffoonery, foolish talking. Jesting has the idea of inappropriate, impure sexual humour. Paul finishes verse 4 with the words, but rather giving of thanks. In other words, what should characterise the Christian life and walk is giving thanks to God for all the spiritual blessings he has bestowed upon us in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything, what does it say? Give thanks. In, in, doing so, in doing so, we show we are separate from the world. Now, after leaving the kind, laying the kind of, uh, of character that should, be na- should not be named among them, Paul now in verses 7 and 8 brings to their attention the consequences of all who, have, who live this way. And they're pretty dire. He says, For ye know no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. Hmm. Paul's words here are very straightforward and final. He is here clearly reminding the Ephesian Christians of the cold, hard consequences of living the kind of lifestyle that they should have left behind when they received Christ. What Paul is making very clear here are two things. The people who live like this shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a clear, straight statement. 
And if we say we are followers of God and Christ, then we cannot in any way be partakers with the people who do these things. As Christians, we are to live lives that are glorifying to God and separate from the world and its ways. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean to say that we can't talk to or mix with those people who are of the world. Some people might misinterpret this to say, no, you've got to shun them. No, we don't. We don't shun them because we want them to come to Christ. Now, in verses 8 to 12, Paul gives the Ephesians the reason why they are to be separate from this kind of lifestyle. What does he tell them? For ye were sometimes darkness, but now ye are ye, are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And then he goes down further. He says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Paul here briefly contrasts the life they once lived with the life that they now live in, the, in using these two metaphors, darkness and light. He then instructs them regarding the way, the right way to live, seeing they are now children of the light, reminding them that living a life that demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit in their lives is proof of what is acceptable unto the Lord. Who remembers Galatians 5, 22, 23? What the fruit of the Spirit? What are they? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, meekness, etc. Against such there is no law. Hmm. Two things can be said here about this, this, uh, this statement of having no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness. Christians must guard against a lustful interest in the works of darkness, even in times of testimony or research. Nowhere here, bearing in mind what I said before, nowhere here is Paul saying we are to avoid the people who are in darkness. But what he is saying is that Christians are to avoid the unfruitful works of darkness. We are not to agree with or subject ourselves to this kind of lifestyle of darkness. Okay, so, for example, if you are a, a, a young guy, young university guy, for example, and your buddies say, hey, come on, let's go down the pub after we've, done our, uh, we've been to the university and, and that sort of thing, as Christians... What should we be saying? We should be saying, no, I'm sorry, I can't come with you. I don't believe in that kind of lifestyle. Now, that's going to possibly lose us some friends. But we need to stand up for what we believe. For the, we need to stand up for the Lord. How are the unfruitful works of darkness exposed and removed? By exposing them to the light of the gospel. This is the message of verse 13 and 14. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. And then he says an unusual uh, couple of phrases, a couple of words. He says, awake thou that sleepest. Hmm. Okay, so first of all, let's talk about this idea of walking in the light. Now, Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. John 8 verse 12. In Matthew 5, verse 14, Jesus also says, Ye are the light of the world, referring to us as Christians. In 1 John verses, uh, uh, 1, verse 7, he says, But if ye walk in the light, as he is in the light. Ah, interesting. Simply put, if as Christians we are aware that it is the light of the gospel that exposes the unfruitful works of darkness, then it behoves us to avoid and reprove such unfruitful works. 
Now, in verse 14, Paul makes an interesting, as I said, an unusual statement. He says, Awake thou that sleepest. Of course, the rest of the verse says, And arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. What does Paul mean by awake thou that sleepest? Can a Christian be asleep when they're awake? Hmm, interesting question. You're sitting there in the pew, you're awake, but is it possible for you to be asleep while you're awake? Well, if you believe what, uh, if you uh, listen, hear what uh, Charles Spurgeon says, it is actually possible. The great preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, says it this way. He says, this sleepiness in the Christian is exceedingly dangerous uh, because he can do a great deal while he is asleep that will make him look as if he were quite awake. We can speak when we're asleep. We can hear when we're asleep. We can walk when we're asleep. We can even sing when we're asleep. And we can think when we're asleep. The man who is asleep does not care what becomes of his neighbours. This is what really hit me when I, when I was watching, reading this. How can he, while he is asleep? And, oh, some of you Christians do not care whether souls are saved or damned. It is enough for them if they are comfortable, if they can attend a respectable place of worship and go with others to heaven. They are indifferent about everything else. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So it is possible. Yes, it is possible for the Christian, to, while he's wide awake, to be walking around and be spiritually asleep to the people that are around him and also the things that are happening around him. Verse 15 to 17 is all about walking in the, uh, walking in the light means walking in wisdom. Paul now adds to this theme of walking in the light in verses 15 to 17, by pointing out that walking in the light means walking in God's wisdom, not our own. Who knows what it's like to walk in our own wisdom? Does anybody agree with me that when you walk in your own wisdom, you tend to really mess up big time? That's right. He says, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. He starts this section by saying, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. What does it mean to walk circumspectly? When we look at the original Greek word, Paul uses here, we discovered to walk circumspectly means to walk diligently or perfectly. Paul then contrasts these words, not as fools, but as wise. So what does it mean to walk as a fool? Simply this, a fool is the opposite of wise. That is, unwise or one who lacks judgment. Paul is saying here that the Christian is to walk in a wise fashion. But the, what kind of wisdom is he talking about? He gives the answer in verse 17. It is a wisdom that understands what the will of the Lord is. So how do we get this wisdom? Who's gone through the book of James? 
James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any man of you lack wisdom, what does it say? Let him ask of who? God. Exactly. In James chapter 3, verses, uh, verse 17, it says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, Paul adds to his statement in these verses, uh, walking circumspectly in wisdom of the Lord with the words, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. The word time here carries with it the idea of an opportunity. So, redeeming the time means a definite season of opportunity. We need to redeem the time that God has given us. And we, he gives us opportunities on a regular basis, sometimes on a daily basis. And we need to literally redeem the time. It's not a matter of making the most of, the, of our time. It's a matter of to make the most of the time and the opportunities that we actually have. Somebody's standing behind you in, in the uh, supermarket and you hear them saying, oh, Struth, I just don't know what's going on in the world. A good answer to that might be, oh, have you got five minutes? I'd love to share with you what is actually happening, because I know. Let's go and have a look. Paul now finishes this section giving the Ephesian Christians an understanding of what it means to live life in the Spirit. He does this firstly in verse 18 with a stark contrast. He says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of this verse because there's an awful lot in here. Uh, but the contrast here is significant in that alcohol, as we know, is a depressant. It loosens people because it depresses their self-control, their wisdom, their balance, and their judgment. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, has an exact opposite effect. He is a stimulant. He moves every aspect of our being to better and more perfect performance. True? Okay. The Holy Spirit's not about making us you know, dull and, and not able to uh, do things or take notice of what's going on. Uh, he's about making us alert and, and ready to give an answer in any and every situation. Secondly, Paul uh, points out to the Ephesians that the spirit-filled life is marked by worship and gratitude. Verses 19 and 20 talks about the fact that speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always. Those who are filled with the spirit will have a desire to come before God in praise and worship and the giving of thanks. I would like to think that on Sunday morning, and on Wednesday nights, we have a desire to be here, to sing praise to God, to give thanks to God in prayer. Yeah. Finally, concluding the first half of the chapter, Paul clearly shows the Ephesians that a life lived in the Spirit is a life marked by mutual submission. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I love reading Warren Wiersbe. Um, who's heard of Warren Wiersbe? Yes? Brilliant commentator of the Bible. The idea, uh, he says this about, uh, about um, uh, literally submitting ourselves. He says, the idea of submission doesn't have anything to do with someone being smarter or better or more talented. He has, it has to do with a God-appointed order. Anyone who has served in the armed forces 
knows that rank has to do with order and authority, not with value or ability. The concept of submitting yourselves one to another carries with it the idea of being a team player. Okay? Looking at it this way, the Christian must not be thoughtless, but think of others. The Christian must not be individualistic, must not be self-assertive. Self-assertion is the very antithesis of what the apostle is saying. That's from Martin Lloyd-Jones, by the way. The Christian must never be self-seeking. We must have a team attitude. We're in it together. What does the Bible tell us? We are a body, are we not? The, head the, the eyes can't tell the ears, I don't need you, etc., etc. We must be happy when someone else succeeds or do, does well. We shouldn't bear a grudge and say, oh, gee, I, you know, I wish I had done that, you know. We must bear our own discomforts and trials with courage. And how are we to do this? It says, in the fear of God. Paul here wants the Ephesians and all believers who read this epistle to understand the motive which causes them to submit one to another. This motive is not social kindness, nor is it the law of God. It is respect for God and Jesus Christ that is to be our motive. It's a healthy reverence, a healthy fear, a reverence for who God is, for who Christ is, that he is God, is what should be our motive. We are to love and to submit to one another because we love and submit to God and Jesus Christ. And if you go through after these few verses uh, where it starts talking about wives submitting to their husbands, we'll understand very clearly the fact that the wife submits to the husband, not because the husband lords it over her, but because the, the wife knows that the husband loves the wife as Christ loved the church. Because so many people forget that verse directly after where it says, wives, submit to your husband. Because it's a strong word to husbands there. It says, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. And that's why the wife submits. Because she knows she's loved. So how then, how and when do we walk in love? We do so when we are imitators of God and we live out the sacrificial love God showed us in Christ. And we'll finish with this. When we leave behind the old life that we once lived, when we walk in the light of the gospel of Christ, when we walk in God's wisdom and not our own, when we live a life that is a spirit-filled life, giving worship and praise and thanksgiving to God for all he has done for us and given us in Christ. When we show Christ's love by submitting to one another in love. That's speaking to the church, by the way. We are to submit to one another in love. When we do this from the perspective and motive of glorifying God, with our whole life, we walk in love. That's basically what I wanted to share with you tonight. That as Christians, we need to be walking in love. And if we want to see uh, the wonderful blessings that God has given us, all we've got to do is go to Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 and we see the wonderful things. We're redeemed. You know, we are God's children. You know, what a wonderful blessing. We have an inheritance 
in Christ Jesus that no one can take away. So let's take those things home tonight and let's walk in love as we go through this week. All right. Well, that's basically our little um, study for tonight.